I think we just might have legislative maps for Ohio based on what the Ohio Redistricting Commission did late Thursday. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi. We are missing Courtney Astolfi because she's having technical difficulties today. <laughs> One of these days, we will overcome all of our technical difficulties. <laughs> it's a Friday. How are you? Good. I made it through the week no, with it's... no technical difficulties. <laughs> You're one of the few, that's for sure. <laughs> that's, that's true. All right, let's begin. What do we have in the new maps from the redistricting commission? The Republicans approved Thursday. Do we come finally to an end of this constitutional crisis? Lisa, take it away. Well, the maps are proportional. This is the third time maybe the charm. Uh, just last evening, there was a four to three vote to to accept this latest map. And Auditor Keith Faber actually crossed over to the other side and voted no against these new maps. But the new maps at glance, at a glance, do look like they satisfy the proportionality issue. So that would be 54% of the seats would go to the GOP, and that's what this map has. 54 of the 99 House seats would be GOP dominant, 18 of 33 Senate districts would be GOP leaning. That is below the 60% supermajority threshold. Um, The first map had Republicans with a 62% advantage, and then the map number two is at 58, so we're moving down slowly. Uh, Bob Cup has said that the new provision has never been used, this new constitutional provision, so of course opinions yeah. differ on the requirements, you know, yeah. but he said the Ohio Supreme Court has filled in some of those blanks. But the Democrats might be cutting off their nose despite their face here. That They voted no because they say there's a big disparity between the number of GOP and Democratic toss-up districts. So So, um, you know, more of them are Republican-leaning than Democratic-leaning. So, like, 19 House and 7th Senate Democratic-leaning districts have 3% or less of an advantage. The closest GOP toss-up is five points. So they have a point there, but they do have the proportionality. So I I don't know where they go from here. I feel like we're not going to get any better than this. I I think the Democrats made one of the biggest strategic errors they could possibly make because this is a good set of maps. Okay, so there's some close races in Democratic districts. The Constitution doesn't speak to that. The Constitution says you can't do this to favor one party or the other, and it should be proportional. It's proportional. This is exactly what the voters had asked for. By not voting for this, these dodo birds have limited these maps for four years. In four years, the Republicans will likely have a Supreme Court chief justice who's in their pocket and will make it worse. If they had cast a vote for this, it would have locked in proportional representation for 10 years. But in their childish desire to try and make it perfect, which it was never going to be, they have stuck it to the entire state for a four-year map. I don't, I don't get this at all. It makes no sense to me that they wouldn't have cast a vote to lock this in. This is what we voted for. Right, right. And it's very interesting that Auditor Keith Faber sided with the Dems on this one. But he said that the map that was approved last night has similar issues to the Democratic map in that it unfairly splits up communities. 
I, I just don't think Maureen O'Connor is going to reject these. I think she's mm-hmm. going to say, okay, we got what we what we asked for. I mean, I don't think anybody objectively looking at this from outside can make a hard case that this violates the Constitution. It now fits what voters asked for. Why on earth would you vote against that and limit us to four years of fair districts with the great likelihood that in four years they'll get lopsided again because of that decision. It's a stunner to me how this went down. Yeah, I um, and I, I'd like to hear Layla's thoughts as well, but I, I I feel like they're they're trying to get perfect, you know, symmetry between the toss-up Democratic and GOP districts, and I, I really don't think that can be done the way the, the population is distributed throughout the state. I don't think that that's achievable. I, I agree with that, but it's, I mean, it definitely sounds like the number of toss-up districts that are accounted for either party is what's sticking in Democrats craw here, you know, those districts where the Democratic favor falls within just a few percentage points. And, you know, the Democratic map that Republicans recently rejected had far fewer Democratic leaning toss up districts than the one the commission approved last night that but the proportionality, you know, it seems that was an issue for the Supreme Court. And the Republicans are saying they read the court's opinion to be most concerned about the Democratic leaning districts that fell within one per one percent range. So, you know, is that true? <laughs> is How close is, does that margin need to be to be considered, you know, because uh, the Democrats are saying, n- no, you know, the toss-up districts are not supposed to be the ones that are counted for one or the other party. Um, you know, so that's what they're, that's what's what's the sticking point here. And I, what, what will I know, say about that? I mean, is it a percentage point? Is it three percentage points? Is it eight percentage points? What, I, what makes it so narrow that it's considered a toss-up district that should not be, mm-hmm. you know, allotted to Democrats or Republicans. Mm-hmm. But but think about what the, the Supreme Court looked at what the Republicans originally did, which was a naked power grab to maintain power disproportionately. When they put the second maps in, it was a little less disproportionate, but it was still disproportionate. Now it's proportionate. That's what the Supreme Court said to do. You know, the Democrats, if they're worried about these close districts, go win them. I mean, go go do what it takes to make sure that you get the seat. But I just don't look. We're in a crisis here. Right. The election's coming. We got to get moving. The Supreme Court spoke and said, here's what you need to do. I'll be surprised if they reject this. This seems like it, it satisfies the requirements and 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 in a not bad way. We would think about the maps we have now completely unfair. Think mm-hmm. about what voters went to the polls expecting. If you'd have told the voters that this would be the result of the map mapping, they would have been happy. It was like, OK, that's way better than what we have now. Mm-hmm. I just to, to, to keep pushing to try and get perfect. Perfect's the enemy of good. And these are mm-hmm. pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I, I it'll be interesting to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did the Ohio Supreme Court raise the stakes in the showdown between the court and the redistricting commission, including Governor Mike DeWine? This this map was pushed through very rapidly Thursday for a reason, mm-hmm. Layla. I think the Supreme Court was using a cattle prod <laughs> to get it to its closure. That's true. The, the Supreme Court has ordered the commission to appear before them at 10 a.m. Tuesday to talk about whether the commission should be held in contempt for all their map-making shenanigans and incompetence. Between now and then, the justices are going to review the arguments from the members of the commission about why they shouldn't be held in contempt. And they submitted 
submitted those on Wednesday. You know, in those briefs, the Democrats were saying that they worked in good faith and had maps produced, uh, you know, and, and that Governor Mike DeWine, Auditor Keith Faber, and the Secretary of State Frank LaRose said that they, they didn't have the map-making software and the expertise since the Republican legislative leaders on the commission controlled the budgets and the map-making staff. And, you know, Matt Hoffman, right. Bob right. Cobb, they had their arguments. So, you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> we'll see how that all plays out and, and how will this new iteration of the map affect the outcome of that hearing we don't know well i what here's the thing i think with all the finger pointing these guys did in their response to the show cause on the contempt uh and the fact that they didn't produce the map by the the date of the when they had to file those i think the supreme court that let's turn up the pressure some let's make them come in let's have the image of mike dewine keith Faber, all these guys standing in front of the supreme court explaining themselves <laughs> that's a that's an ugly ugly image mm-hmm. right and i think they did that specifically to get them to do what they did last night which was to pass some new maps i mean this was i don't think this is really about punishing them i think it was about getting them to do what voters demanded that they do what do you think will happen though i mean i don't think she's going to cancel the the mm. contempt hearing so do you think they'll just, just get a, a browbeating for being such children? I mean, children? it could be. Yeah, I like, think she should, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the Pat DeWine issue is making this interesting, too. Uh, okay. Well, hold off on that. Let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about what we think will happen I mean, Tuesday. I think it'll probably just amount to a scolding, right? I mean, because I don't think that she, yeah, but what if is, the rest of the court is involved like? in, in making the decision about contempt and they have a set of maps that they've deemed valid, they're not going to agree to hold everybody in contempt. I, I just don't think so. No, but what what does the scolding look like? Okay, okay, you know, folks, you, you are children. You really did a bad <laughs> job. You didn't serve the public. And I'm glad you finally did the right thing, but only under the pressure of... Uh, I mean, I, it'll be, I, I hope it's a great yeah. speech. Yeah, anyway, I mean, I think the most, we'll the most egregious moments were after they were ordered to produce, you know, this, the last set of maps and they had that 10-day window. They did nothing. I mean, that's the that's the most outrageous thing that they just, just declared an impasse. And even Governor Mike DeWine was like, oh, yeah, we were res- we had to produce something. We should have not just thrown our hands up and said, you know, we're done here. I mean, that that's the part that I would if I were on the court, I would find that to be such a slap in the face to to to, to our well, role. In, there's in, a, but there's also the issue where they didn't work with the Democrats. I mean. Part of the order was, hey, the voters said the seven of you should work together. And even with the maps passed last night, the Democrats got to see them with just hours before the vote. They were not part of that process. Bob Cup and Matt Huffman had the map maker generate a new map and they quickly rammed it through. They may say something about that, that this is not what the voters expected. You partisan hacks. Yeah. You're supposed Maybe to work Maureen together. O'Connor should produce like a point by point list of all of the wrongdoing that has occurred throughout this whole process just to just to bring it to the fore and remind people uh, how, how torturous this has them, been. Yeah, I would love it if she just called them partisan hacks. That would make <laughs> my day. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Now let's talk about Pat DeWine. We've talked repeatedly about how Pat DeWine did not recuse himself from the gerrymandering case, even though his dad, the governor, is a key part of participant in it he used twisted logic to try and say it's not a conflict that not a single legal expert we talked to could see as reasonable 
All of a sudden, yeah. though, with the prospect of a contempt citation, all of a sudden he changes his mind. Yeah, just a total about face decides he's <laughs> going to recuse himself from the hearing next week because, well, you know, his dad is involved. <laughs> he, he said that, that the Tuesday hearing is a special proceeding. It's separate from the ongoing case's core issue of whether the court will approve the new maps. And on that issue, he would not recuse himself because he said his dad is just one of seven redistricting commission members with no direct stake in the outcome. So in this hearing next week, Fifth District Court of Appeals Judge W. Scott Gwynn, who's a Democrat, is going to sit in for him on the contempt hearing. And that will be interesting. <laughs> well, the the thing that he says about how his dad has no direct benefit from this, his dad is running for reelection and his his intransigence on doing the right thing has pushed him up against the contempt citation. His dad has everything mm-hmm. to benefit from this case. It makes no sense. The other thing is, it's the same yeah, case. Yeah, of course. The contempt citation is part of the same case. So you can't say, oh, this is a new case in which my dad could be cited. It's the same yeah, case. Yeah, it just got, it just got it. really hot for his dad. And now he's, now he's regretting right. that he's, he was involved in it. <laughs> Right. And actually, this puts Judge DeWine between a rock and a hard place, because if he rules for contempt, it looks bad because he's ruling against his dad. If he rules. Wait, am I getting that backwards? So if he finds his father in contempt, it looks bad. If he doesn't find his father in contempt, it also looks bad. Yeah. So he and this this was inevitable. Right. I mean, the, the fact that he didn't get off this case. It was kind of inevitable that he would come up to the rock and the hard place that you talk about, Lisa. He should never have been on Mm -hmm. this case. And ultimately, I'm certain somebody is going to file a complaint to challenge his law license. And he's running for re-election this year. It's really a bonehead move in every way just to hold on. And and (coughs) I don't even understand it. Yeah. And and if he if he were to right. find his dad in contempt, it would just be very uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinner conversation. <laughs> 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 All right, you're listening to today in Ohio. Let's move on. What does a new survey show about how black and white victims of domestic violence have different views on how police handled their cases? Layla. Well, reporter Olivia Mitchell writes that this new survey from the Ohio Domestic Violence Network shows that survivors from marginalized communities have reported more difficulty getting the right response from law enforcement and other social services. And those communities include black women and other women of color, immigrants, members of the LGBTQ community, and survivors who are for hard of hearing. And it involved the, the survey involved 561 domestic violence survivors from different backgrounds, and, and the participants included 505 women and 56 men across Ohio, ranging in age from 18 to over 65, but the majority of them were between the ages of 18 and 44. Many of the participants who are considered part of these marginalized communities reported difficulty with law enforcement, courts, and social services, and they said that they were more likely to feel police were not taking their concerns seriously seriously, which, of course, you know, having covered criminal justice in the past, I I have seen this so many times in our reporting. Every reporter knows that that's knows that to be true. At least a third of black or LGBTQ survivors feared violence from police. And many survivors chose not to call the police based on their fear of being arrested themselves or disrespected or the possibility that their abuser might retaliate against them or or that they could lose their children or their housing. 
women of color who are not black experienced higher rates of being threatened with losing their children, more than double the rate for white women, according to the survey. So, and, and I also found this really, really interesting too. The, among the survivors who are deaf, only one out of the 22 included in the survey said that they were provided an interpreter when they called police. Others had to rely on family to interpret for them, or they were given a piece of paper and told to write down their responses to questions. So just lots of eye-opening findings in this study. So everyone should go check out Olivia's story on cleveland.com. So, Layla, you've got a jaundiced eye on this because as a reporter, you would write about a yeah, lot of, of issues like this. What 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 do you think the solution is? Oh, How do you goodness. fix this? This isn't something that you can do overnight. What is it going to take to change this? These no, practices? I think I think that, you know, a lot of the things that were contemplated in the in the consent decree in Cleveland would you know, if they're implemented properly, address a lot of these problems. You know, I think that there's just a lack of cultural sensitivity, um, especially, you know, we we did such an exhaustive uh, set of stories years ago about the way, uh, you know, uh, victims of crime are handled, especially, you know, we were dealing with sex crimes. But that also extends to to, you know, victims of domestic violence, as this study contemplates. And, and I just feel like, you know, it's unlikely that much has changed in, in their treatment. And, and uh, you know, the provisions of the consent decree would, would go a long way. And I'm hopeful that, that Justin Bibb's administration takes all of that very seriously. I know police reform is high on his agenda. So, All right. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Lisa, you're up. How strong are the statements coming from Congress members regarding Russia's full-out invasion of Ukraine? with Russia forces moving much deeper into the country than Vladimir Putin originally announced. That's a rare moment of bipartisanship, and everybody is full-throated in their support for President Biden and and their horror at what's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, Senator Rob Portman, who is on the—he's the co-chair of the Senate Ukraine Caucus and has a lot of, you know, uh, experience in the Ukraine, he said that uh, the foreign policy crisis is not just for the Ukraine, but for the United States and freedom-loving countries all around the world, and he says the U.S. must take decisive of action to support the Ukraine and the, our NATO allies. Um, he also offered up a few specifics. He said, you know, some of the support would include uh, military assistance in Poland, Romania, and some of the Baltic states. Apparently, uh, the U.S. has sold 250 M1A2 Abrams tanks to Poland, and they're talking about repositioning the U.S. forces in Europe. Senator Sherrod Brown says that this is, quote, an affront to freedom and democracy the world over, and Biden will impose the strongest sanctions that Russia has ever seen. And he also added that now is not the moment for partisan division. And we're really not seeing that. But I must say that uh, Jim Jordan was a little bit circumspect. He issued just a very short, terse uh, tweet yesterday on Twitter, just a single sentence, just say, my God bless, you know, the Ukraine and its brave citizens. But he's also been doing the rounds in the right-wing talk shows saying that the Biden administration is projecting weakness in the Ukraine situation. So, but everybody else, Tim Ryan, uh, the Democrat out of Niles, he says Putin has made his decision and now he must pay. Dave Joyce, who is a Republican in South Russell, Geauga County, urged nations to come together to hold Russia accountable. So like I said, it's pretty much a unified front for Ohio Congress people. What I'm uh, a little bit surprised that still all the, the Republican Senate candidates in Ohio 
are begging for Donald Trump's endorsement. And Donald Trump has just been a stooge for Putin from the beginning. I mean, we all remember that scene where they're on the stage together and he was like a servant boy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Trump has been out praising Putin all week. It's like stunning. I mean, Calling it's like, him savvy these, and a genius. Yeah, I, mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, do these people not remember the 1930s and the rise of Adolf Hitler when he decided to conquer Europe? I mean, it's just one of those surprising things. And, and yet, you know, our Senate candidates are all still seeking Trump's approval. And, you know, the Fox News guys are all, uh, you know, uh, well, it, it's just been a surprising. This is bad. This is, you know, the beginning of conquest. Right. And right. it's something that we know from our history over the last century that you got to stop it. You can't allow it because it goes unchecked. And yet you still have voices like Trump and Tucker Carlson out there acting like it's OK. We should just care about our own stuff. Well, and J.D. Vance even went further. He says we shouldn't be there at all. We have no business being in the Ukraine. So he you know, and then uh, uh, Josh Mandel's latest ad is said that he's pro God, pro guns and pro Trump. So there you have it. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What does a Case Western Reserve University professor who just returned from Ukraine say about what was going on there? Lisa Sabrina Eaton caught up with the professor and interviewed him yesterday. He did not mince words at all. Um, Roman Sheremeta is a behavioral economics professor at Case Western Reserve University. He was in Kiev. In the Ukraine, just before troops arrived, he was there, he was on leave from the university, he's trying to create a new American university in the Ukraine, and he barely got out. He arrived in Cleveland just a couple of days ago on Tuesday and reunited with his wife. Um, He didn't leave earlier, he said, because he didn't think it would be a full-on invasion. Um, He did share some uh, on-the-ground, you know, stories from friends and, and people that he knows in the Ukraine. He says in the city of Ivan Frankivsk, the city was bombed. His parents and brother live in that city, and they're hiding out in the basement. They're okay for now. In Kiev, his friends are reporting steady explosions. Of course, this is 24 hours old now, and people are sheltering in subway stations. I've seen photographs of that in the papers this morning. Airports are being targeted. But uh, he really didn't mince word. He says that people in the Ukraine are scared and disappointed. Western countries were too complacent, and the sanctions are not enough, and he feels betrayed by by the U.S. and his Western allies. Uh, you're you're the former broadcaster, so I'm going to defer to you. I, I so it's not pronounced Kiev anymore; it's pronounced Kiev. I that's what most of the news anchors have been saying, and the reporters. Oh, so I think okay. it's Kiev. Yes. All right. Well, good. I stand corrected. You're listening to today in Ohio. We've talked about Ukrainian populations in greater Cleveland. Where are the other pockets in Ohio? Layla, this isn't just a foreign invasion for a whole lot of people in our area and throughout the state. This is personal. Mm -hmm. That's right. Reporter Zach Smith crunched this data for us, and he says that about 40, just shy of 43,000 Ukrainians call Ohio home, and more than a third of them live in Northeast Ohio. The largest Ukrainian community in Ohio is Parma. They're mostly concentrated in an area of the city known as Ukrainian Village. 
4,100 and change Parma residents of Ukrainian descent account for about 5% of Parma's population. The next largest populations of Ukrainians among Ohio cities are in Cleveland, which has about 2,000 residents, Columbus, around the same numbers, North Royalton has 1,500, and Strongsville, um, about 1,100. Zach writes that Ohio saw its first spike in Ukrainian immigration in the mid-1880s. That's according to Case Western Reserve University's Encyclopedia of Cleveland History. They mainly settled in in Tremont, in the Tremont neighborhood in Cleveland, though, you know, continuous waves settled during periods of unrest in Ukraine. And by the 1980s, the center of the region's Ukrainian community was in Parma. So really, really huge uh, um, implications for a lot of Northeast Ohioans and Ohioans in general. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, Afghan refugees moving into our area at the, in the aftermath mm-hmm, of what happened mm-hmm. there. I wonder if this starts a new kind of Ukrainian immigrant class that, mm-hmm. that comes. And because there is such a population here already, whether we would be a center that's for a, that. That's a good point. Chain migration? I would think we would be. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. I would think we would be. The one thing, you know, of course, I lived in Texas for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, in Cleveland, we have so many European communities here of long standing. We have Poles. We have Czechs. We have Russians. We have Greek Orthodox. So, I mean, you know, there aren't that many southern cities that have those kind of populations. So I would think, you know, places like Ohio and in the Northeast are the ones that are going to be most attractive to the, the Ukrainian, you know, refugees. Well, and most of Ukraine really has embraced democracy since the the breakup of the Soviet Union that Putin is now trying to reassemble. Uh, And and so you got to think they're not going to want to live under the yoke of Vladimir Putin and will flee that country to continue to embrace freedom and democracy. And that that if they're not welcome in some of the neighboring countries in Europe, that they would be welcome here. We'll have to see how that plays out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Some disconcerting information about how Cleveland pays employees and deals with maternity leave emerged from a Cleveland City Council budget hearing Thursday. Layla, I'm always a little suspect when a new administration says, oh, things are all really broken Mm -hmm. and puts some blame on the previous administration. But in Courtney's story, that's not really what they're doing. Yeah, the city council is in the throes of their intensive budget hearings. And yesterday, Mayor Justin Bibbs, Chief Human Resources Officer Paul Patton, came to the table. And he said basically the city's approach to hiring and maintaining this massive workforce falls short of industry standards. And it's kind of lacking when it comes to performance evaluations and pay scales and diversity, equity and inclusion. And he said that despite being one of the county's largest employers, the city hasn't had a truly high-functioning HR department. I mean, that tracks, right? <laughs> I mean, it feels like, uh, you know, when you when you think of City Hall, the first thing you think of is not performance management. So I think I think that's okay. But in, in so, for example, in the realm of compensation, the city has had no standardized process or a dedicated point person to ensure that salaries are appropriate for each job and competitive with similar jobs outside city governments. You know, he said he kind of suspects that there's no rhyme or reason and and, uh, you know, to how people are paid. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion. He told Courtney Astolfi that the demographic makeup of city employees looks 
pretty good with respect to a diverse workforce, but the HR department doesn't have um, an employee who's dedicated to monitoring that, that or educating staff or reviewing salaries to ensure that there aren't disparities between people of different demographics. And then when it comes to performance management, Patton said that the city has no organization-wide formal approach to doing performance reviews or issuing merit raises or setting goals for employees. Instead, they're all kind of willy-nilly, you know, likely handled on a case-by-case basis. And um, yeah. Well, uh, uh, although, let's face it, many city employees are in unions. That's true. And so That's the, true. the raises and things are governed by negotiated contracts, the bulk of them. Um, the, the other, look, the thing we just did, uh, a salary study mm-hmm. for our own operation. We hadn't done one in some years and we wanted to find out, are we paying fairly? Are we, you know, paying equitably? Uh, and it's a lot of work because to be able to find out if you're paying what, what the market says you should pay, you've got to have standardized job descriptions that match up to the rest of the industry so then you could see what the pay bands are. So that's a big job, and I, I would not be surprised at all if the city had not done that for a long time. Uh, if that's what they're talking about doing, that would be great because you'd find out, are you losing workers because you don't pay them enough? What's fair? You want to make sure you pay I people I think that's fairly. probably exactly what he's, uh, what he's aiming for. I mean, they're asking, Bib is asking council to increase the HR bu- budget uh, from 3.4 million to 5.5 in 2022, and to expand the staff to meet all those new needs, and to do that sort of analysis, and to implement, you know, department, you know, citywide uh, systems. And council was really receptive to what he had to say, and they were thrilled to hear about this new focus on strengthening the workforce and keeping good workers with better HR policy. But there was one interesting comment made at the table. It was council members Jasmine Santana and Charles Slafe. They were talking about uh, how they were advocating for an expansion of benefits to include maternity leave, which is apparently something that is currently only available through the use of FMLA and I'm assuming is unpaid. Um, Slafe Mm -hmm. recalled stories of older women employees telling younger women employees to avoid using sick time when they when they need to because they're going to need it later on if they get pregnant. I mean, how depressing is that? So I it's you know and and uh Patton didn't didn't, you know, he didn't deny that that's that that's happening. And I I think, you know, that's that should be on the list of things that the city should do if they want to attract and retain high quality employees. They they have to address things like that. That's just unacceptable today. But remember, that's all negotiated. For I don't know what the percentage is, but the bulk of the employees are governed by contracts that are negotiated. So when we talk about salary studies, for instance, the the unions go and gather that information. If they feel like it's low, they go to a mediator and they bring the comparables from from other cities to make the argument. So if there's not maternity leave in the contract. The unions haven't negotiated for maternity leave in the contract, and they should because everything about benefits and pay is governed by those contracts. Well, I'm not exactly sure what percentage of city employees is, is uh, but I think... Let's, let's find, find out. Courtney, I you guarantee listening? you, Courtney Estoffi, you're <laughs> listening. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I have a hard time believing that th- that this most of this isn't covered through collective that bargaining. Would, what a shame it's for not... collective bargaining... Uh, 
agencies to for them not to to contemplate the importance of of paid maternity leave in their negotiations. Um, yeah, um, shame. Right, that's true. You're listening. You're <laughs> listening to today in Ohio, and that wraps up a week of news. Thank you, Courtney, for appearing with us most of the week. we got to figure out to get you over your technical difficulties so you can rejoin us at other times. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>